Um, we have been in uh, several series that have been looking at the end-time events and the sequences and our response to these things as they happen. Now, sometimes they happen as shadows of things to come. In other words, they're really forbearing what's going to happen. Uh, the, the second thing is there will be a time when this will actually be the events themselves. And so whether we're in a preliminary form of it or the actual in times, the process is still important for us to understand. So this series, How Then Shall We Live, is intended to help us understand how to live in the world lightly, not fully embracing it. Uh, and while we do so, to be light in the world, because we are not supposed to hide ourselves away, but we're supposed to be involved in the world, but not of it, right? Um, our last message in this series looked at Jewish and Christian identity. And I said that to avoid assimilation of ourselves and our children uh, and our converts, we have to have a solid primordial identity that's immune to the temptation of assimilation. Not assimilation to other religions and gods, though that still exists, but to secularism, which is ubiquitous in our culture. So our identity has to be tied to belonging to the Lord and to belonging to one another. And that's critical because in a culture which has minimal or no persecution, which ours is, the temptation of assimilation becomes seductive rather than forced by persecution. Um, that there is a drawing of us out of the faith and into the culture. Now, this culture may switch to a coercive assimilation, if not outright persecution in the near future. But at this point, we're really more uh, drawn to it by its seductibility of secularism and a good life and those kinds of things. So today I want to speak about a mindset and an approach to living in the world, but not of it. This attitude uh, has to be intentionally and overtly experienced in our homes and congregations if we're going to remain faithful to the Lord. So I want to talk first about something that I have addressed many times over the two decades of our existence as a congregation. There are two views that some... Jews in America have, but this is mostly a Christian problem, uh, this dichotomy between this common view, which is a Christian nationalist position. It's a view that holds that God was behind the founding of this nation, so we are, for all intents and purposes, a Christian nation. And there is a battle now, culturally and politically, for the soul of the nation. If this battle is won, then America will return to her biblical roots and we will thrive as Christians and as a nation. Now this view, Christian nationalism, is found on the left and the right of the political spectrum among Christians, liberal theology and conservative theology, but it mostly dominates at the present time the right and the conservative uh, theology Christians. Now, the second attitude is that of diaspora, that America, though heavily influenced and accommodating to Christians historically, 
is now following Europe in a post-Christian secular period and may actually soon become hostile to Christianity. The battle then is not for the nation, but for our households and our congregations to become outposts and embassies of the kingdom of God where Jews and Christians live distinct, that is, holy, and good, that is, righteous lives as light in a darkened America. And that's certainly what we should be doing. This is the attitude and the focus of the Disciple Center, and it's why we're focused on our homes and our faith community. However, I think this has to become more intentional and explicit, and that's my message today. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The whole chapter is 13 verses. I'm going to read that, and then I want to talk about something that Paul says in this context. So he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, he's talking about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. But knowledge makes people arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know He's talking about believers. We know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. And there is no God but one. That's what we know. Um, For even, he says, if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things Come, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all all things, and we exist through him. However, Paul says, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol, until now, eat the food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God, for we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in the idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? He will try to copy you, his stronger brother, but... Through your knowledge, he who is weak becomes ruined, uh, the brother for whose sake Christ died. For uh, through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whom Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ because your brother is part of the body of Christ, right? Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, I know what you think I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to be talking about food. I'm going to talk about the principle that Paul is using here that I think is important, and that's why I titled this uh, this message Yet for us. I wanted to say but for us because I'm used to the King James, but I'm using the New American Standard, and there we have put the translation, yet for us. Now this passage holds the key to maintaining the diaspora mindset. 
in a pluralistic and multicultural setting like that which Paul found himself and we are also experiencing in a somewhat different form, we can learn from this text. Now, Paul was addressing a primarily polytheistic pluralism, and that's why he's talking about God's many and Lord's many. We're living in a pluralism that has religious uh, options, but it predominantly has secular ideologies and worldviews that are vying for our attention. Paul's context then, because of polytheism, is idolatry, which was fully integrated into the political, economic, and everyday life of the Roman Empire. In it, Jews and Christians had to navigate that context lightly and as light. Not fully grabbing the world, but being a light to the world. So Paul has a concern for the Corinthian believers in engaging this. Now his subject is sacrifice food, food that's been sacrificed to idols. And in addressing that, he makes an amazing statement. I want you to look again at verses 5 through 7. 5 through 7, he says, Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there's that statement, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Though not everyone has this knowledge, and some with weak consciences, become defiled. So I want you to catch this. Paul says that in the Greco-Roman worldview and culture, there are many lords and many gods in heaven and on earth. He's quick to point out that these are so-called gods. They're not really gods. So he says, but for us, yet for us, he's making a distinction for we believers, there's many gods out there that people believe in, many lords out there that they follow, many temples that they embrace. But for us, there is one God, the Father and one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. But not everybody knows that. So what he's saying is we have knowledge as believers of how we are to live our life. And not everybody knows that. Not everybody within the, the body knows it, and not everybody in the culture knows it. And so we have to navigate this carefully. So Paul is not about to argue that the Corinthians should correct the situation. You go out there and tell everybody there's only one God and all their gods are driven. He's not, he doesn't tell them to do that. He doesn't say, tell your weaker brother to straighten up. There's no idol. Those things don't matter. He doesn't tell them to do that. He actually seems to indicate that this situation isn't going to change. So he tells them how to live with it. He tells them in several of his writings, both here and in Romans and other texts, how to do that. I'll give you an example. He addresses the marketplace. If that food sacrifice idol is sold in the marketplace, don't ask and don't tell. Just buy it and eat it. Okay? If you're invited to somebody's home to eat and they put food, just eat it. But if they tell you this was sacrificed to Zeus or this was sacrificed to Diana, then don't eat it for conscience sake. Not your conscience. You know those aren't gods. But that person who brought it up 
it means something to them, and so you don't do it. And then, addressing it in the temples, he says, don't go into those temples, because the weak brother will see you in the temple, and then will violate his conscience. Now, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is a principle that Judaism has always used in diaspora, and that is... uh, identified with something that I experienced when I was a kid. I was much younger, and Hebrew national hot dogs had established a slogan that they use to the day, to this day. You'll see their commercials that say, we're Hebrew national, and we answer to a higher power. In other words, other people, there are hot dogs many. Everybody's got hot dogs. But we are Hebrew national, and we make ours different way. That different way is established by our God. They're really saying there are many hot dogs, yet for us, there's only one way to make a hot dog. Now that's important because of the issue of holiness and kosher and cleanness and all of these categories that we as believers live by that the world doesn't live by. And even many believers don't live by because they don't understand them. So yet for us, Jews and Christians who walk, live, and behave under the authority of the God of Israel and the Lordship of Jesus, we have to live as God dictates. We're living by his commandments. We're not trying to change the world and get them to live by it, but as we live those commandments, we become light to the world in hope that some of them will see the light and join us. So how do we do this? Now, Paul's talking about food in this particular text. In earlier texts in the book, 1 Corinthians, he talks about sexuality. So I'm going to start with that because that's closer to our situation. I'm not going to go to Paul's text on that. I'm going to go to the subject as you and I have to deal with. So, at the present time, there are many genders and many sexualities in this culture. They have been brought out by the behavioral sciences, they've been brought out by the LGBTQ plus community, and they are being permeating all of the schools and permeating the media and permeating everything. Yet for us, there is holy matrimony and a male and female sexuality that is exclusive to marriage and procreation. And this is the frontline battle at present. Our children are being exposed to multiple genders and sexual orientations as reality. But I consider them so-called sexualities. Many of you have taken my classes, and you know I don't believe in sexual orientation as it is promulgated in the behavioral sciences. I believe that God made us male and female, that there is a male sexuality and a female sexuality that God intended for marriage among his people and procreation and parenting, and that all of those things are tied together. But our culture has separated all of those things. Now, where is this coming from? Not the culture. Where is my view coming from? Well, it's coming from Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. I want you to turn with me to that text. Leviticus chapter uh, 18, verses 1 to 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. 
You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Now, in the next verse, from 6 on, he's going to tell them how their sexuality and marital relationships are supposed to be. In other words, God says, I do not want you living like the Egyptians. And I don't want you living like the Canaanites. I want you living like my people, following my commandments and my ways of life, the way I designed, because in that you will be a light to them. But the issue is, they may have various ways, but for you, it will be the way I've told you. Now, in verse 26 of this chapter, he says, But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and not do any of these abominations, neither the native, that is the Jew, nor the alien who sojourns with you. What he's saying there is that the Gentiles who dwell with Israel, remember Paul says, we were far away, we're now made close. We are also supposed to follow these. Now, there are several places in the book of Leviticus where this is said, the native Jew and the Gentile who dwells with Israel. And I believe this is the basis for Acts 15 where the apostles placed the do not fornicate, do not eat blood, do not eat things sacrificed to idols, and do not eat things that are strangled. In other words, they took these commandments and said, these are essential for you Gentiles as well. And there is that is the basis for us coming alongside Israel, not having all of the commandments that they have, because they have some identity commandments like circumcision that is forbidden to us, uh, religious circumcision. And that's why Paul in Galatians is saying, if you do that, if you circumcise, you're converting. Now you've got you to gotta follow all the commandments. And that's not going to enhance your salvation. It may make it more difficult. So, what else could we say? Well, there are many family types. One of the things in our culture now is they're pushing uh, homosexual families and marriage and, and, uh, and, and they're pushing polyamorous families and all of that. Yet for us, there is a standard for our families and our roles as husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. And if we turn to Ephesians 5, we see that. Following Genesis and following the book of Numbers chapter 30, Paul, Paul gives clear instructions for our family roles. We're not to do the authoritarian role of the culture and its conservative movement, nor the egalitarian roles of the liberal culture. We're supposed to have husbands who self-sacrificingly love their wives, wives entrust themselves to their husbands, as the body does to Christ. Uh, fathers are to be um, benevolent towards their children. Children are to obey their fathers. Um, um, the master, that this is all the same guy, the husband, father, master, is supposed to care for his servants uh, as God cares for his servants and not be abusive. And the, and the servants are supposed to follow the Lord, uh, follow their master as they follow the Lord. In other words, we are a manifestation and a light, and therefore for us, marriage and family is done differently. No matter how many 
designs the world comes up with, they are not for us. Now what's happening is many who don't know this are beginning to bring those forms into their churches, and many in the churches are uh, leaving the church to go into those forms because their church won't accommodate them. Uh, both of these are the same problems that Paul was having in his day. We're struggling with it now. Now, we could go on. I'll give you one more example. There are many ethical and social justice systems, yet for us, there are the commandments of the Lord and the justice that he demands. So let me give you an example of that. I'd like you to turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, verse 1, uh, James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Boy, that's, that's very American, right? For if a man comes into your assembly, your synagogue, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my brethren, did not God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You can almost hear what Paul said when he said to the Corinthians, look, many not mighty or noble are called, but God has chosen the weak and the, the base things and the things that are nothing to bring to nothing the things that think they are. You've dishonored the poor man. Is, he not, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the, the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are living by the royal law of the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted uh, by the law as a transgressor. And he goes on and says, if you violate the law here, you're violating the law. Now, this is really important. James focuses on how we treat others. He's not talking about the economic equity struggle. He's not saying, tell this rich man to give the poor man his fine clothes and tell the poor man to get a job. He's not doing economics. He's doing love of brethren, of neighbor, in the context of the community of faith. Remember, Jesus said, the poor you have with you always, when money was being used for uh, for the oil to anoint him. It's not that we're not to help the poor. We are to help the poor. We're not supposed to get, leave that to the government. Uh, but the idea is... Uh, we're supposed to be engaged in behavior that fulfills the commandments of God so that we live lightly in the world and we live as light in the world. So the Bible's justice is always relational and based on love, not based on economics. So here too we have to say, yet for us, there is a way of living lightly and as light in the world. Now, I was torn here between wanting to give a litany of examples, but I'm aware that people do not remember answers to questions that they're not asking. So I want to move sooner into the Q&A period, and hopefully we can talk more practically about these ideas. But I have to talk about one more point, and this is really important, when we talk about these things. 
In our very first text, Paul said that none of us know as we ought to know. And he also says that there are some people who don't even have the knowledge that we're discussing now. So one of the problems in contemporary Judaism, and especially Christianity, is that everybody is a religious expert, an interpreter of the scriptures according to their own mind, or they look for someone who says what they want to hear, and it confirms their opinion. So we need to keep two things in mind when we talk about these things, whenever we talk about biblical things. First is an understanding that we don't have all the answers. So humility and teachability must be inculcated in ourselves and in our children. And secondly, we have differing knowledge and we have areas of ignorance. One of the things that I've noticed about human beings is they're more sure about what they don't know than about what they do know. It's amazing that if they don't know about something, they will argue against it. And then, oh, then when you finally come to well, I didn't know. Well, why'd you argue so hard, right? We argue more about what we're ignorant of than we do about things that we have some knowledge. Interesting. But we have to remember that Paul told us to be fully persuaded in our own mind, but we have to also allow others to struggle where they are. And we must be careful not to violate their conscience or destroy those with our knowledge, because then our knowledge is making us arrogant and not humble. Now this happens when we insist on our voice being heard. If someone can't hear what you're saying, you make him an enemy by sharing it over and over and becoming intense when you speak. So if you're convinced of something, have that knowledge to yourself. Of course, if you're asked, you can tell them why. But don't debate and insist on it. You will actually do harm rather than help. So how are we supposed to proceed? I think we need to speak to ourselves and to our children this way. Well, saying, of course, there are many approaches to this thing, yet for us, this is the way we do it. We must say that to ourselves and to our children, because by explaining it that way, instead of saying, well, that's it, that's wrong, we say, that's not for us. God refuses to let us walk that way. Uh, we're not judging the other. We're expressing our pathway of following God. But we have to be sure that it's not our own individual idiosyncratic, uh, idiosyncratic kind of thing, but we are within the traditions of the faith. And there will be variabilities there, both in Judaism and Christianity. There will be slightly different views on modes of baptism, what bread to use for the, the Eucharist, what what prayers to be said in what way, how how we do this, what hymns or songs should be sung or shouldn't be sung. That's okay. But within those traditions, if we are walking at, at the point of knowledge that we have, then we grow in grace and in knowledge over time, and we should not be judging each other. So what's my conclusion here? There's a battle for the souls of our children. It's satanic at its base. And it's working in the children of darkness and disobedience in this culture. And American Jews and Christians can't afford to make this a, a religious national thing and get political. Because that's not our fight. Our battle is against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. So what do we do and how do we express it? We need a mindset that knows what 
the concepts and goals of this secular world is so that we can immunize our children with it and then say to them and our converts, yes, there are many concepts of sex and gender and marriage and race and careers and ways of living and that, yet for us, there is a way to walk that is in the biblical text and we are doing it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, uh, among the Christian nationalists, there is an effort to use the world's methods to proclaim the biblical message. And I'm going to tell you next week why that doesn't work. Uh, but for now, I think we've covered what I wanted to cover. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll do some Q&A. Father, we thank you.